glad you guys have joined us today. Um, and thanks for those that are joining online, whether it's on our website or Facebook or YouTube. Um, it's a good day to be here. Uh, we get to start a brand new sermon series on the life of David. This is something I've been wanting to do for a long time. Um, and just the more you dig into David's life, the it, it just it's going to be a great sermon series. So I just love learning um, from the Old Testament as well as the New Testament and, and seeing how David kind of points us to Jesus. And that's really what we're going to be talking through, uh, talking about through this series. So um, I don't know about you guys, but this is a time of year that I really like sports, like when we get into playoff season for basketball. Um, I'm, a, I'm a sports nut. I don't watch much TV, but when it comes to sports, I watch a lot of sports. So I, I've got to admit that. Um, and like right now, it's the NBA playoffs and, uh, you know, postseason uh, for, for a lot of college stuff. It's just fun watching all this. And um, one of the things that I think is really interesting um, is when you look at how people try to predict um, how good players are going to be. And so you have a whole, uh, in basketball, you have scouts, you have the draft. And so people are constantly looking at players, like trying to anticipate how good they're going to be based on, uh, you know, their height and their athletic ability and all this. So there was a player a few years ago coming out of college um, that the scouts looked at and they didn't really think too highly of him. And I want to read you some of the things they said about this player. They said his explosiveness and his athleticism are below standard. They said, do not rely on him to run your team. Don't trust him. He's not capable of leading a team. They said he was too small, that he had a frail frame. He was frail. He's just not, yeah. said he's not quick enough. They said he's uh, not athletic enough. They said he's going to struggle defensively. He's going to be a defensive liability for your team. Very limited upside. Very limited upside. They said, at most, not a starter, just a fringe player. Uh, they said he relies too heavily on his outside shot. Does anybody have a clue who I'm talking about? <laughs> Steph Curry. And Steph Curry, let me just say, um, he's, they kind of missed that a little bit with him. <laughs> Kind of missed it. He was not heavily, I mean, even going to college, he wasn't heavily recruited. He ended up down at Davidson just down the road. Um, I was still kind of mad that Virginia Tech didn't take him because his dad was a hokey, Dale Curry. Uh, but Steph has changed the game of basketball. If you're not a basketball fan, that's all right. Uh, he's eight-time NBA All-Star, two-time NBA MVP, has set the record for the most three-pointers in history. I think he should have won more MVP trophies personally. Uh, he's really fun to watch because as soon as he crosses half court, you better get ready because he's probably going to shoot and he can shoot from anywhere and usually hit it. Um, amazing player, amazing ball handler. Uh, he can dribble. He can drive around people. All the stuff they said about him, he's just like throwing it back in their face now. There's actually a commercial a few years ago with some of those statements on it. Um, it's like, yep, that was me. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you look at this guy, but the world looks at him like, he's too little, he's too small, he's not athletic enough. And he's like, watch this, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, hold on. Um, because here's what we've learned over the years, and I hope you, you, you see this as well. We're not always the best judge of who will be successful. Because we look at people and we look for the externals. 
We look for the people who look the part. And what we find out is there's something else at play here. It's not just people who look like they can be athletic or be successful. It's the people who have the drive, the determination, the heart that actually go out and do it. And so when we start talking about David, one of the things that we're going to realize pretty quickly is that from a worldly perspective, looking at him, he's an unlikely king. He's not from the right family. He's not from the right place. He doesn't look the part. But we find out he becomes one of the great kings of Israel. Uh, to kind of get us uh, into this story, though, a little bit, we, we really need to back up a little bit um, and, and learn a little bit about David and about the history of Israel. David, uh, we're going to spend quite a few weeks talking about David, and it's a story of heartbreak, of grief, of murder, adultery, friendship, betrayal. It's a story of a passionate person, but yet a flawed person. It's a story of a shepherd, warrior, father, king, and I would add to that fugitive, right? Uh, a sinner. Uh, you can add all sorts of stuff into this. And we're going to be looking at those different aspects of his life. But before we kind of jump into that, we've got to understand how the Israelite people got to where they wanted a king and where they needed uh, or thought they needed a king. Uh, after the exodus, after God led them out of Egypt, we see a period in Israelite history where judges ruled the nation. And so a judge would rise up, uh, lead the people, and then the people would do what was right in their own eyes. Is kind of the phrasing you see over and over again. They would fall away, someone else would come up together, lead them back to God. And we see this pattern. And, and finally, a, a, a judge, a, a, even a prophet, we would call him the first prophet, Samuel came to power. And Samuel did a great job leading the country. Um, but as Samuel got older, we find that the people were getting a little restless. And I'll kind of just pick up the story here because I think it's important to understand what leads us to David assuming uh, the role of king. And this is kind of the backstory today. First Samuel chapter 8 said, As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old. Your sons are not like you. Give us a king. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request, and he went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me and not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. And so at this point in their history, um, the, the Israelites should have realized that they didn't need a king. God was their king. He's the one that led them. He was the one that led them uh, through the wilderness. He was the one that was leading them day by day. But for whatever reason, they looked around and said, everyone else has a king. Why can't we have a king? And Samuel tries to warn them and say, wait a minute, you don't understand. Once you have a king, that means you're going to have to serve that king and it's going to take you away from serving God. In essence, you're going back into slavery again. 
But the people were adamant, and that's when God just kind of gives in, and he, God gave them what they asked for and what they wanted, and that's a scary thought. All right? It's a scary thought sometimes when, we, when God gives us what we actually ask for. Because we don't always get our hearts and desires lined up with where God wants us to be. But God relent, he, he, he kind of gave in. He showed them, okay, you want a king? I'll give you a king. So who do they choose? Uh, they, they choose King Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. And if you look at Saul, he was the one that fit the part. Right, he was head and shoulders above everyone else. He was a strong and athletic. He was the one that the scouts would have picked first. Right, he was the one that you look at and he's like, oh man, he looks like a king. Let's make him the king. But from the very first, he was indecisive. From the very first, he was not the leader they needed or, or wanted. And what we see with Saul is it didn't take long for things to go south. He started doing things for himself. He stopped seeking God's direction. He began to take matters in his own hands. Uh, we see him on a, a couple of occasions make a few really big mistakes. One, he was waiting on Samuel to come and Samuel didn't get there quick enough for, for Saul. So he went ahead and made the sacrifices himself. He took on the role of a priest, uh, which was not his role to take. That was one thing that got him in trouble. And the second big thing was when he didn't obey God to go into uh, the town and, and to kill everything there. And instead, they kept the livestock and they kept the king alive and they brought them back. And then he blamed it. He didn't take ownership for it. He blamed it on his soldiers. And so what we see very quickly is there's some pretty big character flaws with Saul. And that's really the place we find ourselves and the place where we're going to pick up the story today. Uh, and we see here what uh, God tells them in 1 Samuel 13. But your kingdom must end, for the Lord has sought out, sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. This is what Saul uh, is happening to Saul. The, the kingship is going to be taken from him because he is not being obedient. And so God is saying, I've already picked out someone that's going to be the next king. And that kind of leads us to the story of David. Um, <clears throat> the very last verse of 1 Samuel 15 says, The Lord was sorry that he had made Saul king. God literally regretted his choice, and that meant that God... <clears throat> chose a replacement and we are told that God spoke to Samuel the very first prophet who anointed Saul as king and he told him to go up to the house of Jesse and this is where the new king will be anointed and so I'll just kind of jump right in the first point today if you're taking notes that I want you to realize is simply this God accepts whom the world rejects often the world will reject people because they're not popular enough, wealthy enough, athletic enough, handsome enough, whatever the term you want to throw in there, the world will reject him. But that's not what God looks at. And so what we quickly see is God accepts often who the world rejects. God can use the ordinary to accomplish the incredible. And that's really what we see with David. Now, I don't know about you, but um, and I don't know if you guys, somebody have to tell me this. I don't know if you still do this in elementary school now. But when we were growing up, it was vicious when we had to choose sides for our teams, right? 
you, the two, you'd get the two captains and you'd get the two most athletic kids to pick, pick sides. And they got to pick their team. And then they just started picking off. And, and, and you'd pick the, the players that were the most athletic or the, uh, the kids, the, student, the ones who were the fastest, who were the quickest. Uh, they would be the, the, the ones chosen first. And you just, your goal was to kind of move up the pecking order, right? You didn't want to be chosen last. But there was always the kids that get chosen the last. And I felt, and looking back, that was probably not uh, healthy for their self-esteem either. Um, but there was always the kids that got chosen last because, you know, whatever reason, they just weren't the athletic kids. And, and, and you look at that, and... and in my mind, right, I mean, this story kind of reminds me of that scene in elementary school. When you're picking a king, the people are looking, oh, let's get the ones that, that look the part. And God is saying, wait a minute here. I can take ordinary people to do extraordinary things. God is looking and saying, I don't judge by the same standard that the world uses. And so that really, that picture's in my mind as we open up in 1 Samuel 16, where we're going to be most of today. Uh, and I'll just start reading verse 1. We'll kind of break it down as we go, and, and I'll share some lessons along the way here. Now the Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil. Go to Bethlehem, find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. And I'll just kind of pause there a minute. Uh, this is kind of a little bit unusual because Bethlehem is not a big, huge city. Now, one of the things that you realize, and I was just in Bethlehem a few weeks ago, Bethlehem at the time of Jesus even was only about, they estimate about 350 people that lived there. This is not a big place at the time. And so this was a small place. It's not the place for a king. Uh, it's not the place you would expect to go and find a king. Uh, and verse 2, as we continue on, Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. And so he, there's this already this feeling that Saul is a little bit paranoid about what's going on. If you back up a chapter and read in 1 Samuel 15, uh, what uh, Samuel kind of shows up on the scene when Saul didn't kill the king as he was instructed to, Samuel had to do it for him. <laughs> And so when Samuel showed up, they knew he meant business. And so there's this fear, and Samuel even says, like, okay, Saul and I aren't on the greatest of terms right now because uh, this has been announced, right? God, is, he knows that, that he's not going to continue to be king. And, and Samuel, he, you know, God tells Samuel here in verse 2, take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, so that... You have, and say that you've come to make a sacrifice to the Lord, invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I, then I'll show you which one of his sons to anoint. And so in essence, he's giving him a cover story here. It's like, well, go on to Bethlehem, and you're just making a sacrifice. That's what people are going to think when they see you. And so they're not going to be fearful of what's going on here. Um, so Samuel did as the Lord instructed. When he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town, they came trembling to meet him. What's wrong? They asked, did you come in peace? They were afraid uh, Samuel was there for, for business. And yes, Samuel replied, I've come to, to, to sacrifice to the Lord. 
purify yourselves, come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. And when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and said, surely that is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see the things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Very kind of insightful verse here. And so Eliab, he's the oldest of Jesse's sons. As soon as Samuel sees him, he's like, "Ah, that's the one. He looks the part. He's going to be the new king. I'm sure of it. God, is this the one? And that's when God says, no. Now, at this point, you would think Samuel being a prophet, Samuel being close to God, Samuel being seeing the effects of Saul being chosen as king, you would think he would look at this and say, okay, I'm not going to fall into that same trap again and, and go with the will of, and kind of go with the flow and choose as people choose. But he did. And if Samuel did, does that, what makes us think that we're any different? I, I would say, right, that we have to be really careful to not choose as the world chooses. I even see this in churches. I see this, uh, right, I mean, how churches choose people on their leadership teams and their deacon boards and elder boards and pastoral staff. If we're not careful, we're going to choose the way the world chooses. We're not going to look at the heart. We're going to look at the people who are charismatic and have big personalities and are, have the leadership skills and the experience that is expected and the academic credentials. And, and God says, wait a minute here. I look at things a little differently because I'm looking at the, the heart. I'm looking at the, the real person. And God was not I mean, God is not impressed with Eliab's appearance. He, that, that's not what God is looking for. And, and maybe you've tried to, to measure up to the world standard, and instead we need to be focusing on what God's standard really is. We keep going in verse 8. Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shemiah, but Samuel said, Neither is he the one, right, that the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. And so one by one, the brothers stood before Samuel, the prophet, and he just kept saying, Nope, that's not the one. That's not the one. That's not the one. Everyone else is looking at the outward appearance, but God was looking for someone that had the right heart. That was the real test. I read this week, it said, to have a heart for God means that you have a heart that is sensitive to the things of God. You're not perfect. You're still a sinner, but you have a sensitive, caring, responsive heart. If you have a heart for God, he can use you greatly. In fact, he is constantly on the lookout for people with that kind of a heart. What is God looking for? He's looking for men and women whose hearts are completely his. Not partially his, but completely his. That means there are no locked doors. Nothing has been swept under a rug. That means when you sin, you own it. You turn from it. You care not only about your actions, but about the motivations behind them. And we're going to find out David was that kind of a man. And that kind of leads me as we keep going here. He's looked through all of these people. He's not found the right one yet. 
But there's one more. And that my second point is our past can be the preparation for our next assignment from God. God can take our past. And, and let me just say, I, I've heard this so much. Mike, I, I would serve, but you just don't understand my past. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the mistakes I've made. Uh, and whatever, we fill in the, the blank and we say, but my past is preventing me from serving God. I would flip that around and say, God uses our past as preparation for our next assignment. God can take those past things in our life and uh, he can turn those things around and work them for good in ways that we cannot explain. That we cannot even understand sometimes. But he can use even the bad things that we've done, the bad things that have happened to us, and flip those around as preparation, as training, as lessons learned so that we can serve him in the future. I would say that God is not looking for perfect people. He's looking for hearts that are fully devoted to him. Let's keep going in the story in 1 Samuel 16, verse 11. Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And I'll just stop right there. We read that and like, oh, this is a good thing. He's dark. He's handsome. Beautiful eyes. If you kind of go back and look at this, this is not like, oh, he's like this massive man. These are descriptions of a child. He, he's saying he looks like a kid. Yeah, there, there's a, I've got one more. He's out there in, in, the, in the sheep field and watching the sheep and the, and the goats, but he's like a kid. He's like a kid, right? And, and, and the Lord said, this is the one anoint him. And as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the, fla the flask of olive oil that he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. And then Samuel returned. And so... This is kind of the beginning of David's reign as king, but he's not king yet. This is where God says, you are the one, but now we get to see him enter a period of waiting. His job was a shepherd. Now, uh, being a shepherd in that day, day and time, it was not glamorous. Uh, if you look in the fields around Bethlehem, it's not lush and beautiful, I would say, like the area up in Galilee. This is kind of more uh, of an arid climate, a lot more brown, <laughs> more brown than green uh, around the fields um, of Bethlehem. So the shepherd's job was to find food for the sheep. And they were kind of looked down upon because they kind of wandered around and just all over the hillsides in the area to, to, to find places for their, their livestock to, to pasture. So they're, they're doing this. This is not a job that was looked up upon. In fact, it was the job in the family for the kind of the lowest ranking person of the family. Um, and so as the older brothers, uh, kind of, it was kind of one of those things that as they did it and got older, then they're like, oh, now it's your turn. And they kind of dumped it off. I do that with weed eating, weed eating at my house. Kind of the lowest ranking person of the house has to weed eat. Um, and so uh, Luke did it for a while. Now Drew's doing it. Now when he goes to college, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> so I'm in trouble. I don't know who's going to do it next. Um, I guess I'm going to have to, I'm, I'm going to be the lowest ranking person in the house again when he leaves. So. <laughs> Goes back to me. 
But for that's kind of how the shepherding job was. It's the lowest. I mean, whoever it's like it, whoever it got dumped on somebody that had to go do it, and, and the somebody was David here. And so that's really what David and, and and I would say at this point, if you said now David, now you're anointed for king. Now here's what's going to happen next. I think David wasn't quite ready to understand what was about to happen. And I think if he did understand, he would be scared to death. To say, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to start serving Saul, but then Saul's going to get mad and turn against you, and he's going to try to kill you, and you're going to have to run and hide from him. And Oh, by the way, in the middle of all that, you have to go and defeat the Philistine giant, Goliath. Um, and, oh, and, and, and not only that, but when you do become king, your own kids are going to turn against you and try to overthrow you. And then uh, th- this is going to be a mess and your kids are fighting with each other. And, oh, and then there's this whole Bathsheba thing that you have to remember. This, I mean, you see, we're about to, in, we're about to embark on a roller coaster ride. I'm telling you, the life of David is crazy what he's going through. But at this point, he's a shepherd. And God is going to use that experience to prepare him, to train him for what's about to come next. Because as a sheep cares, as a a shepherd cares for the sheep, now David is learning to care for God's people. And we're going to see this, this metaphor throughout the rest of Scripture that God is a shepherd. That he cares for his people. He cares. uh, And and even this imagery of pastors as shepherds that have to care for the flock that God has entrusted to them. We see uh, in Psalm 23 that David writes, the Lord is my shepherd, right? We see this imagery throughout. Jesus even says, I am the great shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and respond to it. They hear me and understand We see this over and over again, but God is using David's time as a shepherd to prepare him. Now, I'll kind of back up and say there's there's several reasons that David shouldn't be king Uh, from a worldly perspective. If we're looking on it, first of all, his family line, his family tree uh, wasn't proper. His grandmother was an immigrant uh, his ancestors, there's a woman that was almost executed for adultery. There's a prostitute. I mean, you look at this. This is not the type of lineage for a king. His bloodline wasn't right. The second thing, the second reason that I would say he's kind of an unlikely candidate for king is his birth order. He was the youngest. In that day and time, the oldest had all the birthright. They had the wealth. They had the influence. They had the power. And so if you were the youngest, you got dumped on with everything. And that's really where David was. And so for that reason, he really shouldn't have been king. And finally, David already had the job of his shepherd. Uh, and, and there was nobody else to hand it off to. So that was going to be his job from now on. There was no way out of that. Just because he was the youngest, that was going to be his job. And so all of these things right, show us that He was not the one that would typically be picked. But God doesn't choose by worldly standards. Psalm 78 says this, He chose his servant David, calling him from the sheep pens. He took David from tending the ewes and the lambs and made him the shepherd of Jacob's descendants, God's own people, Israel. He cared for them with a true heart. He led them with skillful hands. 
David was a good shepherd. And God used that experience. He used that as training and preparation for David to be the shepherd of his people. And so sometimes when we think we're getting dumped on, sometimes we think we're in the middle of a bad experience, God is saying that very experience is what is preparing you for your next assignment. That very experience, that thing that you think is terrible, that you're frustrated with, that you're complaining about, that very thing God is using to build us up and prepare us for what's next. Now, I read this this week, and I, I want to share it with you. And it's, it's power from J.D. Greer in a commentary he wrote. He said, it's easy to rush past the realization that David was an ordinary person especially if we are acquainted with some of the extraordinary events of his life. How can the David, who wrote most of the songs, who, most wrote, who wrote most of the Psalms, who knocked off Goliath, how can he be an ordinary man? Is he not the standard after which all future kings would be measured? Is he not the pinnacle of the extraordinary? David's life was certainly not ordinary, but not because of any greatness in, in himself. The great aspects of David life, uh, David's life are all the result of the Spirit of God. Even some of the more magnificent scenes from his life paint him as an ordinary man. He challenges Goliath to a fight, but only because his father sends him to the battle with sack lunches for his older brothers. All right. He didn't show up to fight Goliath because he was this great warrior that was going... No, he showed up to bring uh, lunchables to his brothers. And they're saying, oh, well, and he's like, aren't you going to do something about this? Right? Um, he writes dozens of psalms, but only because he has time on his hands while he's sitting in a pasture or he's hiding in a cave. So much of his time right, is sitting around waiting for what's going to happen next. David became extraordinary, but we must not miss that every extraordinary event in his life happened in spite of his own ordinariness. I don't think that's a word, but it's in here. David had access to the power of an extraordinary God because he did not think he was extraordinary himself. This is a strong contrast to Saul, who was fully convinced of his own greatness, a folly that led to God's spirit, uh, that, that led God's spirit away from him and brought him crashing back down to earth. And then he said this, contemporary North American society would have us all be Saul's instead of David's. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. What do we hold up and exalt in people? Right? Leadership, strength, passion, uh, loudness, you know, the, the charisma, the, the, the thing. You don't hear a lot about heart and caring and gentleness. And you don't hear about those things in leadership circles. You want someone that can take charge and make things happen and get things done. Our society tells us we need to be like Saul, but God tells us we need to be like David. I think there's a, a lesson there for all of us. Because David was ordinary, but he served an extraordinary God, and God did extraordinary things through him because of it. And that kind of leads me to my next point. When we wait on the Lord, we can either grumble or we can choose to be humble. We've got a choice to make. Now, I don't know if you know how long David had to wait between this time that Samuel anointed him and he actually took the throne, but I'll tell you, it's about 15 years. 15 years of waiting, of saying, and, and, and I'm just, I'll be honest, if I was in that position, 
I have a feeling I know what I would do. I would be saying, but God, didn't you say that I'm supposed to be the next king? But God, why, why am I having to go through this now? God, why is this not happening? Why? We, that's, that's what we do because we're good at it. We like to grumble, complain, question. Um, we get frustrated in the waiting. And when you think 15 years of waiting, that's a long time. 15 years of waiting is long. What happens in the meantime? We'll, we'll read uh, verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul, and the Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him with depression and fear. Some of Saul's servants said to him, A tormenting spirit from God is troubling you. Let us find a good musician to play the harp. Whenever this spirit troubles you, he will play soothing music, and you'll be well again. All right, Saul said, Find me someone who plays well and bring him here. One of the servants said to Saul, Hey, there's one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem. He is a talented harp player. Not only that, he, he's a warrior too, and he's got good judgment. He's a fine-looking young, young man, and the Lord is with him. And so what's interesting here is not only David was a shepherd, but he was building a reputation as a good shepherd, as someone who was not afraid to protect the sheep. Not only that, in his spare time, he, he was a, a talented harp player. Who knew? You know, I, I think about this. Again, in our culture today, would you, I mean, David was a hippie before hippies were cool, okay? He was out in the field playing a harp and, and, and caring for animals and doing it. And, and he was a different guy and so different. People knew about him. And so they tell Saul. Um, Saul sent messengers to Jesse to say, send me your son David, the shepherd. Jesse sent David to Saul along with a young goat, a donkey with bread and a wineskin of wine. And David went to Saul and began serving him. And this next part here is so important. Saul loved David very much. And David became his armor bearer, his right-hand man. Saul sent word to Jesse asking, Please let David remain in my service, for I'm very pleased with him. And whenever this tormenting spirit from God troubled Saul, David would play the harp, then Saul would feel better, the tormenting spirit would go away. So here's, here's kind of what I, I feel. Have you ever watched the show Undercover Boss? I like that show for some reason, but I'm, I'm like, I keep thinking, the people have to know that's a boss. I mean, there are TV cameras all around. How can you be so naive not to realize what's going on? But whatever. Um, this is like undercover boss because David shows up to play harp for Saul the king. Now, David knows he's been anointed king. Saul doesn't yet. So in essence, David is the real king, but Saul doesn't know it yet. But here's the amazing thing about that. What David got was preparation. He got a front row seat to the king to see what was happening, to see what. And I think sometimes your best leadership lessons are learning what not to do. Right? I mean, we, have you been in that position before? You learn what not to do. And he got the front row seat to see what not to do with Saul. And so he got to play the harp for him. He got to be his armor bearer. He got to be around him as the decisions were being made for the people. But it was all preparation for what was about to happen next. God was preparing him. God was using him. And God was using that time of worship, which is what David was doing. He was using that time to prepare him. And, and I will tell you that when we worship, 
when we focus on God and who he is and what he's done, it keeps us from grumbling and complaining. I think that's a key for us. If you are in a season of waiting, the best thing you can do is to worship and get your focus back on God where it needs to be. Because as you're focused on God, you're not focused on all the problems and all the distractions and all the roadblocks. And so maybe you're in that season where uh, you're in a, a period of waiting and wondering and God is saying you need to worship. You need to get your focus where it belongs. What David needed was time. God needed to work in him and through him to bring him through these situations, to build his faith, to prepare him to rule. And he knew he wasn't quite ready, but he needed to go through this to, to be ready. And so David, he had great faith. And, and I, I just think we need these constant reminders to, to get our focus back on God. Now, I'll, I'll kind of, in wrapping up today, I'll share that uh, I've not heard a lot of stories about David except about David and Goliath. Uh, a lot of sermons tend to focus on that. And then when you do hear sermons about David, um, they'll, they'll say, hey, the story of David is you can be like David. Here, here's my, and I, if you remember, Austin did a sermon a while back that was really interesting. We'll talk about this a little bit next week. But like even the story of David and Goliath, the story is not we can all overcome our giants. The story is that God, God is God. God rescued Israel. I would say when we look at the story of David, the story of David is David points to Jesus. Doesn't point to us. Points to Jesus. When you look at Jesus, he was born in, in Bethlehem, a small, out-of-the-way place that nobody was expecting. He was ordinary. His family weren't rich. They, weren't, uh, they didn't have power. Uh, uh, you look at everything about the story of Jesus. He was an ordinary person, just like David. But God chooses to use the ordinary uh, to humble the proud. And what we see with Jesus is everything about David. And as we go through this series, I want you to be thinking about David and see all the foreshadowing uh, that points to Jesus. Right? Uh, and we can see ourselves in David, but the story is not meant to resonate with our lives. It's meant, right? It's meant to remind us of someone greater that is coming. And, and so, uh, you know, you look at all of this and Jesus, I mean, there was a time of waiting, a time of preparation, a time of tempting in the desert. There's all these similarities between the stories. And so I would just challenge you a little bit to let's look at, let's look for Jesus. I love when we study the Old Testament that it's not just some dry, old and boring history. But we see a book that points us to a, a Messiah, to a king that has come to save us. And Jesus is that king. He's the great shepherd. And so today, I just want to challenge you a little bit. Um, when you read these stories, I want to challenge you to get in the word. And as we're going through this, to keep reading and learning about David. But are you the type of person who will surrender and be faithful and, and have a heart that that chooses to follow after God. Uh, there's a verse in 2 Chronicles that says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. 
whose hearts are fully committed to him. That's, that's the type of people that God is looking for. Will you be that type of a person? It says, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fully commit my life to you. It starts with making Jesus the Lord of your life. That's really the start of it. And then we learn day by day, moment by moment, to trust God, to not complain about our circumstances, but to trust him. Even when things don't make sense. Even when we go through times of preparation and testing and trials and, and turmoil. Even when we go through those things, those, time, those things are preparing us for what God is about to do next. And I, I just, I, I'm excited about this sermon series because we're going to see, I told you it's going to be a roller coaster ride uh, of the ups and downs of David's life. We see good things and we'll see not so good things, but we'll see how he responds to those. And so uh, I hope that you will get in his word. I hope you'll invite some people and join us as we go through this series. Um, and I hope that most of all, that you'll see how it points us to Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful that your word from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus. How it points us to the one who can save us, who can rescue us, who can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so I'm thankful, Lord, that we have this account of the life of David, the king, the shepherd, the, the warrior, the father, the king. This, we see so many uh, different aspects of his life that we can learn from. And Heavenly Father, I pray that as we go through this series that we would focus on our own hearts. And our, we could ask ourselves the question, have we really surrendered our heart to you? It starts with making Jesus the Lord of our life, which is an act of surrender. It's an act of saying, I'm not going to lead my own life, but I'm going to let you lead my life. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to put my faith in Jesus to save me and to lead me and to guide me. And your word tells us that when we do that, you will save us. When we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we believe in our heart, God, that you raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. And that's your promise that we have. So today, whether people are listening online or whether people are here in this room, my, my, my prayer would be that they would be able to, to very clearly and boldly say, I'm going to trust you, God. I'm going to surrender. I'm going to make sure my heart is trusting. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you will guide us as a church, as a body of believers, to go where you send us to do what you've called us to do. Lord, we thank you for this time of worship this morning, this time in your word, this time to study and, and learn and grow together. Would you help us to be more like Jesus, the great shepherd? It's in Jesus' name we pray today. Amen.